Hey, uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is God's Word During Exile, a Bible study podcast, and we are currently studying the book of Revelation. We hope everybody enjoyed uh, last week's uh, lesson uh, with Jason Goodham. And so that, we're actually... Wasn't huh? that just a blast to record that last week? It was so much fun to do that last week. I loved it. <laughs> loved it. I mean, considering that like we recorded it in October. And so we're just happy that we got to it. Jason has been literally busting our chops for the last three months, uh, wondering when we were going to actually air his episode. So now we can say it officially happened, Jason. And now we're looking forward to having you on more uh, of our episodes into the future. Um, and maybe it'll be more time sensitive as well. We won't record something in October and then release it three months later. But I'm sure that all of you really enjoyed Jason's um, sharing, his commentary, his insight, all of them. I know I did as we were going through it. Uh, in fact, it's one of those things that right now we were recorded before I sat down and re-listened to it. And so I'm looking forward to going back and actually listening to it this week so that I can uh, <clears throat> kind of grow in my knowledge of the book of revelation because we're kind of all learning together as we're sharing and as we're going and so um in my screen even though i know that this is drastically wrong so i'm actually going to guess i'm going to say like this is my cussy up here in this corner all right i'm going to say this is ben up here and this way over this way is matt nelson even though it's not on my screen this is ben this is matt and this is mike but I don't think that that's right. You got one of three correct. Which one do you think it was? On which go? The second go or the first go? First go. First go. I'm going to say I got you correct, Mike. Nope. No. Okay. Well, you got W. The dubs. Oh. Nice. Well, I'm happy that I could pick such a fine, upstanding gentleman who is looking rather dashing today, except usually like when we go, Matt, you have like this nice little single hair that comes down like mm -hmm. this. And I'm always like, man, he's just so good looking. He's such a distraction for all of our listeners. And today though, you don't have that. So maybe no, no. as you get talking and stuff, it'll just naturally drape down. And yeah, I can if I get just, really worked up maybe. And then I can just curl pop out. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be good uh hopefully you guys enjoyed uh last week's session or lesson if you guys did um let us know in the comments and stuff because we would love to have other guests on uh and definitely have jason back for another go so today uh we find ourselves in revelation four last week jason covered that uh that first verse which we had so much to talk about uh, in that first verse that I'm glad that we really only concentrated on that portion because there's so much meat in that one verse. And so that's great. And so today, um, after we open in prayer, Ben is going to read all of Revelation 4, and we're just going to see how much we can cover in the hour. We're going to see how it goes. And uh, if we can cover the whole thing, great. If we can't, uh, we'll tune in uh, next week and we will uh, finish it off. All right. So, um, Mike, if you want to open us in prayer, that would be great. Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for another day of life. Every day that you give us is an undeserved gift. Help us to see that and understand that, to praise you in the good days and in the bad ones, and to always, <clears throat> always see your mercies no matter what comes. Lord, thanks for this opportunity to dig into this next vision in the book of Revelation, starting here in chapter four. I ask that you would uh, just bless us uh, by your word today. Lord, show us our sin and point us to Christ and his finished work for us. Lord, by your word, strengthen our faith. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. That was a good prayer, man. That was like all encompassing. Thanks. I, I practice every once in a did while. Did you? I was I was actually gonna ask, but I didn't want to put you on the spot. Like, did you have that written down? No. Nope. Was that just on the fly? That was on the fly. Show off. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> I mean, no, Mike, you are wonderful. Because if I badmouth you too much, I'm gonna get hate mail. So I don't, please, I, I retract. I retract my previous <laughs> statement about him being a show off. He knows his Bible very well. That is one of the qualities that I love about Mike Hussey. 
who is a fine, upstanding gentleman. <laughs> no hate mail, please. All right, Ben, take it away. All right. So this is a reading from Revelation chapter 4. And uh, we should just note, too, that chapters 4 and 5 make up the whole of this uh, vision that we'll be taking a look at. So we're just getting the first half of it, as it were. Um, so, all right, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, reading from the English Standard Version, says this. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the twenty—sorry, uh, seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive honor and receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Here ends the reading. All right, here we are. Revelation chapter 4. And uh, this next vision, I think, maybe contains some of those things that people think about when they think about the book of Revelation. You know, those, the letters that we had, they were great, but when people are thinking about Revelation, that's not always where their mind goes. Um, but when we get these visions of the living creatures, that's, that's kind of what people think about, isn't it? Is like the living creatures and the, and the bulls and the seals and like all the, all the crazy interesting stuff, right? So we're not going to jump straight into those living creatures. We'll, we'll get into the rest of this text, but it's kind of, kind of fun to hit those things. It also doesn't hurt that there's a modern worship song that is literally called revelation song that is this chapter oh really yeah so there the chorus is that portion of chapter eight holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come hmm. yep so it's uh it's kind of interesting and i think that that has brought people's attention back to it as well i had one youth kid uh who came up to me uh, knowing that we were recording through the book of Revelation. And he goes, dude, I just found a fun fact out. He goes, did you know that the whole, that there's a, there's this song that like, they just take literally the lyrics from Revelation four and they just sing it. And I was like, yeah, dude, the song is called Revelation song. Where do you think they got it from? So <laughs> it was, uh, it was kind of interesting, but to see that too. So I think that that also brings people's attention to this portion of Revelation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe our listeners should go check out that song. And if we get to uh, chapter five next week or, or sometime soon here, uh, you could check out a song by Andrew Peterson on that chapter called Is He Worthy? And uh, Chris Tomlin also recorded that not too long ago. Um, and so there's another version of it. But uh, wonderful song might kind of get you in the mood for digging into that chapter more too. Cool. Might have to check out both of those songs because I don't think I'm familiar with either of them. So we covered verse one of chapter four, I think pretty solidly last week because um, we took an hour to do it. But are there any other thoughts you guys have that you want to throw out about one or should we jump right into two here? 
We yeah. should just go into two. We'll jump into two. Unless two brings us back to one and then we'll backtrack, but let's just go in right into two. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so John starts out, at once I was in the spirit. Uh, this is not the first time that John says something similar to this in the book of Revelation. Um, also in chapter one, uh, verse 10, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And that's when he gets that, that first vision of the son of man there. Um, is John talking about the same thing in both chapter one and chapter four, or is this, is this slightly different? Um, before we do that, could we back up a little bit? To chapter um, or to verse one, Ben? Uh, more, <sighs> more like a bird's eye view. Oh, sure. Nice. Killing me. So, um, yeah, so as we're, so we had just finished, you know, the John's first vision. Remember, he saw the risen Christ and he was commissioned to write to the churches. Um, and then also, you know, he's continuing that here. He's still writing what he is being commissioned to write in chapter four, but just um, kind of by way of introduction, kind of bird's eye view. So again, as we mentioned before, chapters four and five make up this next vision. Um, and, and this vision is really kind of the, we could say kind of the heartbeat or the core of revelation. So it's going to guide and govern how we understand the rest of it. Um, and so, so yeah, how we understand this is pretty important. And so what we, so kind of the idea is what we see, and we'll go through this as we work through each of the verses and such, but what we really see, you know, as John sees into heaven and he sees God sitting on his throne, right. And he sees, you know, uh, this, you know, again, we'll talk about the details, but an overview, um, the saints in heaven, the angels worshiping together, uh, along with him in the church on earth. And, you know, what's coming after this, remember, so as, as we will progress into the vision of the, of the seals and then to the trumpets and then to the bulls, um, John is basically going to receive three visions of what will happen uh, between the ascension of Christ and his second coming. Okay. And, and a lot of the stuff that's in there is going to be things like trial and tribulation and suffering and so on things that we've already seen in the various letters to the churches. Um, and in the midst of that, you know, um, we are continually called to come back to, chapters four and five, in which John sees, especially in chapter five, he sees the risen Christ, the lamb uh, who was slain, right? Standing in heaven, right? Um, and he sees evil defeated. He sees God ruling and reigning over all that happens, even though it seems like there's so much turmoil here on earth. There's peace in heaven. God is on the throne. His risen Christ has uh, made payment for sins, and the saints who die on earth are present in heaven with the angels, all the host of heaven and so on, uh, worshiping and praising God. And this is how it is. And this is how it will be. Um, and so it really becomes a, an assurance for us in the midst of you know, whatever the church suffers, whatever trials and tribulations uh, she goes through. Here's the reality. God is on the throne in his crucified Christ risen again, having paid for sins, stands in heaven as well, ruling and reigning and his saints reign with him. That's what's really happening, even though we don't see that with our physical eyes. And so this becomes our assurance and our, and our peace during whatever it is that we endure here on this earth. This is the reality. And so if we keep this in mind and pair that with the very end of Revelation, as John sees the new heavens and the new earth, we get the actual story. This is how it is. And this is how it will be. So whatever is happening right now, it'd be all right because this is the reality and this is what's coming. So those, those things um, give to us a great assurance during that kind of suffering. And I know that we, we talked with Jason about this too, but just to, as a refresher, if someone's just jumping into this one, just real briefly, when John speaks about, when he says after this or after these things, um, this is where a lot of different uh, 
debate goes on in how to interpret this. Some take it in a chronological sense and they'll say, well, after the, this means after the time of the church. And so they, they would peg this as the rapture of the church and the church is gone from the earth and God is going back to working with the Jews or they see it sometime way in the future. But um, we want to resist the temptation to make revelation into a chronological timeline. So when, when John says after these things, he means after the previous vision that he just saw. So he saw vision number one. And then after this, he saw the next vision. So there's no, there's no specific timeline that is given to us. And we get into a lot of trouble when we try to make it strictly chronological, but rather we kind of get God's view of history. He doesn't mark years and times the way that we do, but this is the, again, this is a reality. This is what's actually happening. And this is where history is going. Um, and so again, we aren't given any clues in the text whatsoever that would push us to understand this in a chronological way. Um, and so it's rather John saw this vision, then he saw this one, then the next one, then the next one. Um, and, and in fact, Ben, there, there are things in Revelation that are going to push us to see it in a non-chronological way, like three different ends of the mm -hmm. world and returns of Christ that show up in Revelation. It's not like right. Christ comes back, God starts over, new creation, another ending, mm -hmm. Christ. No, it's not. There are no three endings. It's, it's one ending from three different perspectives. So, yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like that movie Clue. If you've seen the movie Clue with Tim Curry. Yes. Have you guys seen that movie Clue? Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like right at the end of it, they're like, here's the way that it happened. And then you think that you're at the end of the movie and then they do this whole rewind thing and they're like, or it could have happened this way. And then they replay it again. And I think, do they only do it twice or do they do it three times? I think there's at least three. I think so. And it's kind of interesting to like revisit that. So that's instantaneously what I thought when you were mentioning that, where it's like three different things. So, yeah. yeah. It seems to me that as we think about, you know, prophecies in the Old Testament, we can see how that happens too, where when we go back and look at them, it seems in some cases that, you know, the first and second coming of Christ were all being portrayed seemingly as like one event or, or whatever. And if you were to go back and try to map that all out chronologically and to, to sort it all out, it's, it's, uh, you would really have a tough time with it and you get some really weird results. Uh, but now that we have the, the benefit of having some of those things already have having happened, you know, with the first coming of Christ or some, some other period in the, in our past, you know, we get to see that some of those prophecies were already fulfilled um, and some of them are yet to be fulfilled in the future. So I think we would have a really hard time, be, you know, with strict chronological timelines with really pretty much any of the prophecies. Not to say that some of them don't have like a time element, but, um, but we got to be careful in how we um, force our ideas onto the scriptures and respect, you know, how they're being written and just trying to understand what God is doing. Yeah. And yeah, bear with me with a little more introductory stuff too, as we think about this. So a um, couple of things to take note of one, we see, for example, in chapter five, you know, we do have, you know, the, the lamb standing before the throne, right. Or midst the throne uh, as though it had been slain. Right. So we have the risen Christ enthroned in heaven. And that is not something that is is future. Um, this is something that happens at his ascension. That is precisely the point of Christ's ascension uh, to heaven is to rule and reign over his father's kingdom. And and so um, that's that's the whole point of the imagery of the son of man in Daniel chapter seven that Jesus appropriates for himself that he ascends to the ancient of days and he receives the kingdom, right? And so Christ is presently ruling and reigning and he has been since his ascension. And so this cannot be something that is, oh, this just happened way in the future. Um, it also doesn't work to just shove it all into the past either because it goes far beyond simply the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, um, which is those who take a more like preterist view that it all happened in the past that doesn't work either um but so so the best way then to understand it 
believe is that, you know, just as uh, we saw with the churches, that not only was it applicable to the specific situation of those historical churches, but it was also uh, applicable to the church of all times and all places. So also this vision and the subsequent visions are applicable to the church of all times in all places and, and very firmly anchored in the ascension of, of Christ and his enthronement in heaven. Um, and part of what else is going on here is that what we see in the scriptures is that, um, so we have this present age, which is passing away, right? So, you know, this, this age with sin and, and the activity of the devil and so on and so forth, um, is passing away, but the, the new age is coming, which is the eternal, uh, new heavens and new earth, what we often call the eschaton, right? That's yeah. The last age. That's, age that's what come, you and smart right? people call it. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, can you, uh, just define that really quick for us? Well, eschatos means last. So we use it as a noun, the eschaton. It means the final age, the age, which is the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth. So think of it in the same terms as eternity, new heavens, new earth. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we have, so we have this present age and we have the age to come. But what we have in the scriptures is, is language that overlaps between the two. So we have, you know, so like Jesus will say, when he comes on the scene, he will say that the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, right? It's right here. It's near to you because it's here in Jesus Christ. And yet the fullness of the kingdom of God is not yet uh, our experience. It, the consummation has not yet come. It's fullness. That's still coming. So we have this already and not yet, right? So we have an inbreaking of the age to come into the present age. And so we get some of this overlap of language. We get the language, you know, of things that are to come being spoken of as if they are present now because they are in part. And so all of that, as I say, is it, it doesn't hold with a, a strict chronological ordering of things because you don't just simply have this age and then the age to come as if there's no overlap between those, but you have the age to come in breaking on the present one. So there are realities that will reach their fullness in the future that are present now, if that makes any sense at all. So we, so we get that language of things that are to come as if they are present now, because we, we have them in part, you know, our experience of them is partial at the moment. Um, but when our Lord returns, the fullness will come, but we still have it now. So we participate in the age to come, even in this present age that is passing away. And so, so it's kind of a, mixture together it's not as if it's clean cut oh we come to the end of the present age and then the new age begins but the new age has begun in christ in his incarnation his life death and resurrection and ascension um and we will see the fullness of that to come so one example of this is like the author of hebrews will say that you know with jesus ascension everything is subjected to him right he rules over everything yet we do not see at the present time, everything subjected to Christ. So that it's true that he rules and reigns over all things, yet we don't yet see that because the fullness of that, the full realization of that is yet to come. So we get it in part. So hopefully that didn't just lose everyone. And is, is, that, kind of is that kind of similar, Ben, to like Jesus's miracles while he's here on earth in terms of like, Jesus performed these miracles as like a foretaste or like a, mm -hmm. um, a promise of better things to come. When I, when I explain it to kids for uh, Jesus's miracles, I always uh, frame it in reference to like movie trailers. And I tell them that like mm -hmm. Jesus's miracles are like movie trailers of the perfection that we are going to experience in heaven. You're just getting a glimpse into what Christ is actually going to do. Is that similar to what you're kind of talking about here? Yeah, I think so. Because uh, you have, for example, you know, in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, you know, Lazarus would die again. But it was a it was a picture, a foretaste of the resurrection to come when Jesus healed diseases. You know, he was kind of, in a sense, he was undoing the fall, right? You know, from from sin, you know, and the effects of sin, disease, sickness, death, and Jesus is kind of turning the clock back on it, as it were, you know, he's reversing it, you know, so he goes to a leper and he cleanses the leper. He heals the blind and yet, you know, they would still die. And, you know, the blind man who was healed, you know, maybe in his old age, his eyes would cloud up again. 
but it was a picture of the day of resurrection when there will be no more blindness, there'll be no more sickness, no more death. And so, yeah, it's very much a, a foretaste as it were, you know, the, the age to come has been made manifest now, even in, you know, in part and a foretaste of what is to come. So if that makes any kind of sense in that long explanation. Yeah. And if it doesn't make sense, if you want to comment down below or reach out to us on our awesome email, God's word during exile at gmail.com, all one word, we'd be happy to uh, further explain it a little bit better if you're not understanding. It. So, yeah. And by, and by we, we mean Mike will do that for you because he controls the email. Yes. Yeah. That's true. No, I think that was good, Ben. I guess I'll give you a pass for making us go back in time after I started verse two. It's important to have the context right before we actually get into things. So any other like uh, big picture things that we should, we should talk about before we jump into verse two? Because I'm, I'm not restarting it a third time. Why wouldn't that be apropos mm -hmm. to what we do in the book of Revelation? <clears throat> I suppose it would. <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, oh, Mike. There you go. Wow. What? Word of the day. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I got it. I think that's Trump <laughs> Ben's word there. So ben, you should totally grab that like little mini fire extinguisher and just shoot it <laughs> off in your office. Right? Yeah. There was Eschaton and then there was Aperto. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, so, so, verse two. So, verse two. Yep. Uh, John says at once, I was in the spirit. He also mentions that he was, it was, it was 110, if my brain still works, 110, that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day before he gets that first vision. Uh, is John talking about the exact same thing here in, in one and in four, or is he getting at something a little bit different? Maybe you guys have uh, um, more insight on this, but it seems like the first reference in chapter one there was maybe we could say more of a normal uh well, uh, normal isn't the right word. It was maybe like what we might understand as like kind of a, a worship experience, you know, that, um, you know, enjoying the ministry of the spirit, you know, through word and sacrament, kind of a, um, like we might experience too at any time that the Lord is ministering to us as we meet with him. We might especially think of during divine worship, um, Sunday morning worship service, you know, kind of being in the spirit and uh, recognizing the spirit's work within you. This one seems like, um, and I don't know if they're mutually exclusive, but it seems like this one is, is maybe referring a little bit more to something that is just beyond understanding in the physical realm. This is like, I mean, with this being a vision of the door in heaven, this is something just like out of body experience, uh, completely, um, I don't know, I, without explanation within the, the physical world. Is that maybe a good way of understanding this? Yeah. Cause it, it comes on the heels of, you know, John, you know, he looks right. And he sees the door standing open in heaven and then the verse or the voice that he had heard at first, you know, so Jesus speaks to him. He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Right. And so then at the command of Christ, come up here, John is in the spirit and now he is in heaven. So, so the, the language marks similarities to other calls of other old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. They don't, they don't have the explicit mention of an open door, but Isaiah, you know, it's like he gets transported right in, right into heaven, right? He sees the Lord seated, sitting on his throne, right? And the angels, um, you know, the seraphs in particular, seraphim, you know, before the throne and so on. Um, Ezekiel has similar, you know, throne room presence of God uh, visions. Um, and so John is very much in the, the vein of the old Testament prophets and he is caught up into heaven. So this very well may be something similar to what St. Paul describes, you know, without any clarity given to us 
um, that he was caught up into the third heaven and he saw things which, you know, he was not allowed to speak of. Right. And this is in so, uh, second Corinthians <laughs> chapter 12. If you're wondering the beginning of second Corinthians 12. Yeah. So, so yes, something that, you know, would not be a natural thing to occur, you know, but Christ by his power, you know, calls John up into heaven as it were, you know? And so John gets a firsthand front row seat to what's going on. And, and there uh, just, a little clarity here. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, Paul, he, he doesn't seem to totally understand it himself. He says this, uh, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Mm-hmm. And it just, I mean, it's beyond understanding. It seems like it's some just like spiritual experience where the body's kind of left behind because it's uh, in this realm that we don't really understand. That's so mysterious and beyond our, what our physical eyes can see. Uh, but but it's uh, definitely not something that he fully understood. It seems. I feel I feel like, <laughs> excuse me, that that would be the the Pee Wee's Playhouse word right there, where Matt just goes left behind, and I feel like people would just be like, ah, <laughs> you said left behind. You know, one of the things that I really like too is um, how God is doing the work in this. You know, so like, and I think back to that passage in Ezekiel too, where like in the presence of God, which is fairly similar. Like, so if you, uh, if you read the passage that Ben just read to us and then go back and read Ezekiel one, you'll see that the throne on which God is sitting on in Ezekiel is fairly close to the throne that's being described here that he's sitting on as well. And I love how Ezekiel is forced to his knees. And the only thing that brings Ezekiel to his feet is the spirit. That's it. He can't bring himself to his feet. He is thrown on the ground. Um, And I think about it the same way here, where here's John once again, God is saying, come here. But he's not saying like, you come here to me. He's literally saying like, let me show you something. And then it says, here we go. He's in the spirit. And now he's seeing these things. So God is the one who's doing the work in this uh, in this portion of scripture. It's not like John is saying, okay, God, I'm coming to you. No, it's like, God's just saying, get ready. Let's go. I'm going to bring you here. It's not get to work, but instead buckle up. Nice. Yeah. All right. So John's taken up to heaven in the spirit. What does he see? There's a throne. There's one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. I have no idea what either one of those stones is. It's a chameleon. Um, yeah. Isn't that what it is? Yeah, it just changes colors. It's a lizard. Okay, good. Um, no, I have you could, actually. could look up a, a picture and share the screen. Ooh, that'd be fun. So in my translation, I have Ruby. Um, Is it first or second? That's probably paired with the carnelian, maybe. Yeah, I think that's so. I have Jasper and Ruby in my translation. Okay. So yeah, this is actually a very interesting portion. I, I love when when we have all of these different uh, ways of describing the throne of God. You know, uh, a rainbow that shone like an emerald, um, and so that that's kind of interesting because when you think about all of these like precious gems, um, if you know anything about rocks, um, you know that they have the ability to kind of like cast these different lights. And so I wonder if the color too has any aspect of what we're getting at here too. And I'm really just trying to kill time until Ben actually shares a screen of the portion mm. of jasper and chameleon chameleon see and, and that's i don't know if i bit. have a really great picture of it but uh but one thing we have to keep in mind too is that these are these are kind of our best guesses our best approximations we don't we don't entirely know if Here, I the can, stone I can that's it. mentioned here it is so so this 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 is what they're saying. I don't know if you can see my screen or not, but this is what they're saying is Carnelian Jasper. Um, 
So I don't know. I don't know if that helps or not for people who are like visual learners. Yeah, it's like reddish. Yeah, but that's yeah. And it sounds like Jasper can you can get a bunch of different colors too and such. Um, so I think mostly the idea, you know, is that these are precious stones, you know. Um, and so, like for example, Jasper is mentioned near the end of Revelation in chapter twenty-one, verse eleven you know, uh, which speaks of, you know, the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a Jasper clear as crystal. So the idea, you know, with that is, you know, it's, it is a precious gem, but it also reflects the, the light of God's glory around the throne. Um, you know, carnelian would be similar, you know, precious gem. We know how, you know, especially high quality precious gemstones, they will reflect, light and they will shine them out um and so yeah that really seems to be kind of the the connection there you see the the light of god's glory you know just being shown out it reflected as if through precious gemstones i like this one too it kind of looks like jupiter a little bit that one's kind of cool as you brought that up about it reflecting god's glory it kind of made me think of when uh my wife gretchen and i got engaged and I, I gave her a diamond engagement ring and it wasn't the most impressive ring on the planet, but there was a diamond in it. And, uh, and every time that she'd get that ring out into the sun, she was like checking it out from every different facet because however you turned it, it was reflecting different aspects and different like beautiful things. And so I kind of imagine that too, like you've got the, the precious stones that are cut in certain ways and they're reflecting God's glory. And it's all these different dimensions of his glory too. You, you see kind of everything depending on how you come at it and look at it. Oh, that's definitely going to be a stolen sermon illustration. <laughs> that's a good one. That's all right. I steal all of my sermon illustrations from other people. So you can steal from me. Also, um, this might be... Uh, something that we're supposed to connect with elsewhere in scripture in uh, Exodus chapter 28 and then later in chapter 39 there's descriptions of these kind of gems precious stones being set in gold as the high priest's breastplate and um, it describes too that they um, there were like signets in them that that had the names of the 12 tribes of of israel and and so a picture i guess you know of our high priest and we uh, we know all of the the powerful imagery with that and the description kind of 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 christ as our our high priest so it could be you know something to connect there with that kind of ministry uh, position of and work of god Nice. Uh, John also notes that, and we kind of hit on it, that around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, our culture connects a rainbow to something. I can't remember what it is, but I don't think it's biblical. Well, I thought I I was going to say the flood. Oh, yeah. That's not what our culture connects it to, but that's a better connection, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> that, that rainbow was given as a as a as a promise that you know God's not going to destroy the world through a flood anymore. So it brings your mind all the way back there to that that promise of God and His kind of unending faithfulness to to His people throughout the generations, right? Yeah. So it's we when we see that we remember the judgment that the flood was, but we also are primarily being drawn to with the rainbow the fact of the promise like you're saying, Mike, that it's a, a comforting thing. And so in this, um, but it's the same God, right? The God who brings wrath and judgment upon sin, but also gives wonderful promises uh, to us of, of his protection and salvation. All right. Any other thoughts on the appearance of uh, God there on the throne or that rainbow, or should we move on to what else is surrounding the throne of God? I think we can move on. All right. Uh, Verse four, around the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in garments of white with golden crowns on their heads. 
Now, I know there's quite a bit of debate around this uh, as to why there are 24 of these thrones and 24 of these beings, and also who is it that's, that's seated on these thrones, right? I mean, I've, yeah. I've heard that perhaps are they're you angels. That, Mike, or I wasn't I sure if you were going to answer that. No, no, I was, I was just floating it out there. Okay. I was hoping somebody would just say Jesus because that's always the church <laughs> answer. Uh, uh, you know, I Jesus twenty four Jesus. I've heard that maybe they were they were angels, uh, but the description doesn't really seem right to me. Right, um, I don't remember anywhere else seeing angels clothed in white or with crowns on their heads or even sitting on thrones. So it seems a little disconnected that it would be angels. Um, any other thoughts that you guys have? So I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that I, I know what this is about, but I, I, I'm not really sure what different people have done with this. So do you guys have any other, um, uh, you know, things that you want to share about like what different people have done with this? Um, yeah, I mean, some are, are just kind of variations on, some of that, but I guess some have seen them as like Babylonian astral deities, like stars and whatnot. Um, but that doesn't really fit the the context um, of Revelation, and it doesn't appear that John has is making any conscious use of any of that. Um, but he's really drawing on uh, the Old Testament much much more than anything else. Uh, then you have angels. Um, is a popular one. Um, exalted Old Testament saints is another that has been set forward. So it would be restricted. They'd be restricted to the Old Testament saints and particularly prominent ones uh, as the, at that. Um, it's been suggested that the number 24 is perhaps based on uh, David's organization of, you know, the priests into 24 different orders um so like one of the orders was of well what we say abijah or abiyah who is um that was the line that john the baptist father zechariah was in so we see those you know persisting into the new testament those orders of of priests um so that's possible that's been suggested that um the 24 comes from that um others like i said sometimes it's just a variation so instead of just strictly angels some have suggested they're angels that represent uh saints of old testament and new testament um as well as you know suggesting that all together you know basically the 24 comes from the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And so together they are representative of all the people of God, both old Testament and new Testament. So you kind of have a, you kind of have a little bit of a range, sometimes just a little variations on, on some of those same ones. And that last one is, is what I was taught and, and how I've understood that. And uh, the, as the representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel and the, the 12 apostles then representing the church, uh, both Old Testament church then in Israel and then the New Testament church, but believers across then all of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that would and that would fit very well with them being clothed in white um, and having crowns as the, the saints of Christ reign with him as well. Um, and it would, so in this way, it would be similar to, you know, later when we hear of the, the ceiling of the 144,000 similar idea in that way, where you have 12,000 from each tribe of Israel is kind of a picture, you know, of this is the entirety of God's people. And so you have that same kind of thing going on here that, um, that whether you lived in history prior to the incarnation of Christ or after uh, salvation has always been the same way through faith in God's promise through faith in Christ, whether, you know, you received that promise to look forward to, or you witnessed it right in front of your face, 
or you receive that promise to look back on what Christ has done and look forward to what he will do. You know, all of it is faith in Christ and in his, in God's promise is the forgiveness of sins. And so whether old Testament or new Testament, um, we're all saved in the same way. So that would seem to make a lot of sense that the 24 elders would be representative of the entirety of the people of God from Genesis to the end of revelation. Yeah. And I think that uh, it works really well too uh, to look at it that way, because when you look at how God dwells, this is just bringing that back up. So like, for instance, in verse four, it says surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And that makes you think back to the 12 tribes of, uh, of Jacob of Israel and how they circled around the tabernacle where God promised that he would be. And then the same thing with the disciples, they essentially circled around Christ who was God in the flesh tabernacling amongst those people. And so I think that this just once again points to God's desire to be in the midst of his people uh, even until the very end for eternity. Or what's the word? Ecclesia. No. It's, <laughs> yep, it's Ecclesia. Don't worry about it. Gen. Oh man, it'll come to oh, me. Oh man, I think that was that was the common day when the train just fell off tracks there at the end oh, <laughs> eschaton 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 is that what the one you were looking for eschaton that's the you, word you had apropos and then oh man yeah well i mean god couldn't let me get like my head get too big and just smack it down in my place i have like maybe one or two nuggets of amazingness every five months and then immediately following after it's just <laughs> Back to Earth, my hero. Pops that hot air balloon there. Right. <laughs> uh, so let's save keep us, going. Mike. What was that? I said, save us, Mike. I'll try. <laughs> uh, let's keep going with this description of the uh, of the throne of God. Here we're in verse five. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Uh, I've seen two different directions on this. This could either be talking about, um, you know, like the divine judgment, the judgment of God, um, or either the, or the other hand, it could be um, just a, a, an announcement of, of the presence of the Lord God Almighty. What do you think is the better way to look at this? Is this a sign of, of judgment or, or just the presence of God? Well, I mean, there are a couple of, different things and um matt has some some insight and possibility that i'll pass it off to him in just a minute but we do see you know a similarity for example to uh well once again to the visions that ezekiel has he sees these same kinds of things lightning and thunder and so on um but we also remember too our minds are brought to uh god on mount sinai as he came down on on the mountain in the flames of a furnace and with thunder and flashes of lightning so much so that, you know, the people of Israel were, were terrified. Right. So I suppose in some respects, you know, like it could, it could be associated with, with judgment, perhaps, you know, the terrifying presence of a holy God to a sinner, but, but there doesn't seem to be anything particularly in this text that would, it would limit it to, oh, this is only speaking of judgment, but rather it seems more of this is the majesty of God. You know, God doesn't, you know, become visible or go anywhere without, you know, disturbing the natural order, as it were, you know, unless he comes clothed in the man, Jesus Christ, you know. But, um, you know, but I think it, it does certainly speak to, you know, the majesty of God's presence, Um but uh, Matt, you were you were talking with us before we started recording about some uh, some other possibilities of what might be going on here. So I I like the idea of thinking of this really as representing God's presence. I think that that's fairly clear because you know how at least in some cases how God presents Himself in that way throughout the scriptures uh, being the God kind of of the mountain and of thunder and lightning. And we think especially of Mount Sinai. 
Um, but we see that picture kind of coming up at different points through throughout the scriptures. And so uh, it's, it's a picture I think he wants us to keep in mind uh, of himself. But interestingly here, I, I've been trying to process this um, again after I heard at a pastor's retreat this last year about uh, the Baal myth and kind of the things with the Exodus and some of the other religious things that were going on at the time. There were, um, there were gods of like the Canaanites and the Egyptians and such that, that uh, were, and Baal was, was one of those. He was kind of the chief god of the Canaanites, but also um, Professor Brent Olson from the Free Lutheran Seminary. He was uh, sharing that, that that seems to have made its way down to Egypt even and, and so was kind of involved in the Exodus account. And, and uh, that's you know, maybe why God presented himself in that way um, as sort of a competitive parallel to this other religion. So Baal was set up as, uh, was described as the God of the mountain, the God of thunder and lightning. And also he had this kind of battle with the God of the sea and, and he overcame the God of the sea. So he was shown to be the greater God um, in that case. And so, um, and, and uh, we're going to see a little bit about the sea, but the sea God was, um, was described in the old Baal myth that was found by archaeologists, um, or actually somebody stumbled on it, but then archaeologists have been able to study it. And uh, anyway, the God of the sea, it was, is basically, um, connected with Leviathan, which we see in the scriptures. So the, the sea was, you know, tumultuous, all the waves and storms and very unpredictable and violent and, and could be deadly. It was temperamental. It was seen as being chaotic and evil, a uh, symbol of chaos and evil. And, uh, and so the people kind of feared it, worshiped it, you know, were kind of trying to appease the God of the sea. But then, um, so this God of the sea, Leviathan, you know, he has this showdown with, uh, with the God of the mountain and the lightning and the thunder, Baal, and uh, Baal defeats him. Uh, but in the scriptures, we see some, then some things with this that seem to be bringing up these same kind of images. And it appears that God presenting himself in this way is showing that he is the greater God over all of them. And, um, and in, in the scriptures, like in, um, in Psalm 104, it talks about Leviathan and, and, uh, and then Rahab is another name for the same, like sea creature. Um, we see in like Psalm 89, the sea monster and stuff, but in those, God is like throwing down and defeating this sea monster, um, and uh, what happened in the Exodus then is that when the Israelites were being led out, they were, you can read this in the Exodus account, that they were led right to the Red Sea in front of the mountain Baal Zephon, which would be the mountain then where Baal was worshipped, the god of the mountain and, and lightning and thunder. And so God there defeats the people who worship them, uh, the Egyptians, right? But he also parts the Red Sea showing his dominance over it and he and he crosses over and he's conquering the essentially the god of the mountain and then he goes and he sets himself up at Mount Sinai which is where he presents himself as the god of thunder and lightning and uh, and in that way he is the one true God Almighty um, we maybe have a sense of some judgment there because that's where the law is given although we see that Mixed in there are his promises and his love and showing that he was the redeemer of his people. So it's maybe not, I wouldn't say it's entirely about judgment, but it seems that throughout all of this, God is showing that he's the one true almighty God. And, um, and it's, a, it's a spectacular picture. We can think then of, of those various times that God appeared to Moses you know, in, in those ways and, and even some directly to the other Israelites. And it was a terrifying experience for them. Um, but uh, actually I, I sent an email to Professor Brent Olson trying to re request some more data and information on this. So hopefully 
we can learn some more. I can get a, a few more facts uh, lined out about lined up about this, but it's a pretty interesting study and might help unravel some of these confusing images that we have in the Psalms and, and uh, throughout the scriptures. But it seems then we're coming back to some of these kind of same pictures because we're going to see, you know, Leviathan showing up and, and things about the sea and, and stuff here in Revelation. And, and throughout the book of Revelation too, it's going to kind of continue to unveil that there, there really is only the one true Lord God Almighty, right? He showed himself up on the mountain as the, as the one true God who had defeated the sea God and defeated Baal. And we're just going to see that continue to be revealed throughout Revelation, which is kind of a, kind of a cool connection. Uh, let's continue on in verse 5, because uh, there are a couple more things here around the throne yet. Uh, the next one is we see before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. Uh, we talked about this back in the first chapter, unless my mind is escaping me, the seven spirits. It's a number of completeness of perfection, right? We're talking about the Holy Spirit here before the throne of God. Any other thoughts on that? I think that just kind of names it, right? Yeah, it draws on the imagery of Zechariah chapter four with the seven lamps in the presence of God and then John explains it pretty straightforward here. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's why we bring this guy. He remembers Old Testament stuff. It's important. Uh, and then before the throne, here in verse 6, as it were, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Are we talking about actual water here? Is there, is there a sea in heaven? Do I get to go boating in heaven? Well, in the new heavens and new earth, there would certainly seem to be water, but that's not really what's going on here. Cause it's not the, it's not so much like the sea as physical water is bad, but, but the sea does become, or was certainly an imagery or associated with chaos and with satanic power, you know? And so what we get here basically is, you know, so we have this image, right? So God is sitting on the throne. He's accompanied by all these, you know, heavenly creatures. You know, the, the saints are, are with him before the throne. Um, and, you know, here he is with flashes of lightning and rumbling and thunder and all of this stuff. Um, and then there's just this placid sea, right? So, so the idea that we, we get... Um, is that the the power of Satan, the the machinations of Satan are ended, are are put to rest? Um, you know, even though even though uh, our experience on Earth, you know, again, it's that already not yet. We still experience the raging of the devil, right? And we'll and we'll hear about that, especially in Revelation twelve, when Satan is cast from heaven. You know, he comes down to earth in a great fury and rage because he knows his time is short. And so he's raging and trying to destroy as much as he possibly can. So we still experience that. But he is indeed defeated. And that's what St. Paul teaches us, for example, in Colossians chapter 2, that at the cross, uh, Christ disarmed the powers of darkness. Right. Um, or Jesus himself, when he when he comes uh, casting out demons and he's accused of casting them out by, you know, Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He says, if Satan casts out Satan, how can he stand, right? So Jesus comes and he says, you know, first you bind the strong man and then you can plunder his house. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm here. I've bound the strong man, Satan, and I'm plundering his house. I'm kicking the demons out. I'm healing people. I'm turning back the effects of sin. You know, Satan, your doom is at hand. Um, and so you know, with the coming of Christ, with his death on the cross, Satan is defeated. Um, he is bound. He is, uh, he is done. Um, so even though we still experience his raging again, it is indeed a fact that his, that he is defeated. And so we have the, the calm sea before the throne of God, um, you know, and that is done again through, as we see, especially in chapter five, through the crucified and risen lamb of God who puts Satan to death. So, you know, we have that already 
not yet. He is defeated. We don't yet see the fullness of it. But here is this vision in heaven. Here's comfort for you that no matter how much Satan rages, he's done. Nice. And I don't know how much to make. Oh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was going to ask. I was going to say, is that why my wife doesn't like coconut? Because of the macaroons of Satan that you were just talking about? <laughs> I yep. shouldn't. Have, I shouldn't have let you keep going. Okay. <laughs> I thought after earlier when you had such great insight that you would have some really wonderful nuggets there for nice. us, but macaroons instead. Um. So I don't know uh, what to make of this, but, um, you know, one commentary was just kind of drawing attention to this picture then of the throne and that this sea of glass like crystal is, is kind of, you know, surrounding him. It, it seems to give then this uh, picture of there's some distance, you know, between him and us. So just, uh, it's a beautiful picture and, but he's definitely set apart, isn't he? Uh, from everything else. And um, so I don't know what to make of that, that necessarily, but it's definitely a beautiful picture of God set apart on his throne, surrounded by this sea of glass. I have a sneaking suspicion. We'll draw that out just a little bit next week when we talk about uh, the song of the living creatures or the hymn of the living creatures singing holy, holy, holy. Yeah, you're right. This is an amazing vision of God that's given to us. And even in these just first six verses, there are some really encouraging things. There's some amazing things to take away. And uh, probably six was the most encouraging to me because when I look at this world, I see corruption. I see sin. I see evil. I see wickedness. I see all kinds of garbage. And a lot of times it's like, and that's just when you're looking in a mirror. And that it's absolutely oh. right, dude. You're spot on. You're spot on. That's, that's, you know, in the first hour when I wake up and look in the mirror and it just all gets worse from there. Right. But you can get really discouraged. And like Ben said earlier, and there's another reason we keep around because not just Old Testament stuff, but just like smart guy stuff. You know, Ben said, you know, this is the reality. Doesn't matter what your eyes see. This is the reality. Evil's been conquered. Satan's been conquered. It's done. Christ has finished it on the cross. Um, and that that's the truth. And we, we don't experience it fully yet, but the day is coming. And that, that promise is, is sure as sure as rock solid. You know, it's a hope that's unshakable. So that's incredible, incredible promises here in this, in this chapter. Yeah. And so, you know, we are basically being invited by, you know, by God through, through John to, again, to, to see the world, to see the history, if you want to call it that, from God's perspective, right? Um, that, you know, whatever we might have planned for history or whatever we might think of the you know, the history of the world, you know, we get all this up beyond the right side of history, whatever that means, you know, um, this is, this is true history. This is really what's going on. We're invited to see the world from God's perspective, not from our own. Um, and so we see those spiritual realities, you know, again, by, by faith, this is part of what I think St. Paul means when he says that we walk by faith and not by sight, because we don't see this stuff, you know, we don't see God sitting on his throne with a, calm sea in front of it and the four living creatures and the elders before the throne and the flashes of lightning and thunder and all of this stuff. We don't, we don't see that yet, but there it is, right? We only can see it through the eyes of faith and we have it from God's own word that this is, this is what is real. So once again, just kind of driving that home as we go through revelation, as we continue to progress through it, the focus really is not on all the bad stuff. That's, that's typically what, uh, we often hear emphasized when it comes to, you know, uh, popular end times people, whatever. They're always focused on the bad stuff. It's always doom and gloom. It's always this is going to, you know, this bad thing's going to happen and that bad thing's going to happen. And that's really not where Revelation centers on. Um, yes, 
bad things will happen because we're sinful human beings and we live in a sinful world. And so we should expect that there will be suffering, that there will be sin, that there will be all kinds of uh, corruption and bad things will happen throughout the entire time uh, between Jesus' ascension and his second coming, right? Just as there was evil in the world before that. And so that should be, that should never be surprising to us. That should be something that we expect. But what allows us to, again, endure all of that and have hope is precisely this, that, you know, God is on his throne. Christ, the crucified and risen lamb reigns presently. We reign with him. We are joined to him. Our sins are forgiven. We are before the throne of God as well. Um, So we look at this and we say, here is our sovereign God who is gracious to us, who has forgiven our sins in Christ. This is the reality now. And guess what? We can look at the end of Revelation and we can see John's vision of the new heavens and new earth and say, guess what? That's coming. The fullness of that is coming. So whether, you know, I look and see this is what's real now and this is what's to come. It's a pretty neat picture. Right. And so. So, yeah, just whenever, you know, we encounter those difficulties or as we go through and we hear about bad things, if we're tempted to get down about that, go back to Revelation four and five. Read those two and then go read the end of Revelation and the new heavens and the new earth and remind yourself of what is and what is coming. Awesome. I can't say anything else that's better. So Matt, will you close us in prayer? All right, let's do it. Lord, we thank you for this powerful vision that has been shared with us and, uh, and it's, it's fun to just try to imagine what it was that John saw to have, have these things recounted for us, but to also realize that, that uh, these are expressing wonderful truths for us of what is and what is to come. And we thank you that you are on the throne, that you are above every other God or so-called God, that you are, are the the true God and the the victorious one and that Satan, even though he uh, churns and rages and attacks and flails around and tries to harm us and this world being full of troubles, Lord, even though those things are true, Lord, you are victorious. And in, in the end, um, you show yourself to be the one true almighty God who has had victory over sin, death and the devil and, and Lord, that you are, are trying to encourage us with that message. And as we think on these things and the victory that you have in, in Christ through his death and resurrection, and um, that, that you would um, comfort our hearts and give us peace. Lord, may we trust in your victory, in who you are, and, and not look to anything else in the world or to any other uh, idol or, or anywhere else, Lord, for you are the one true God, the one who was and who is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is your name. And so we praise you, Lord, our, our God and our Redeemer. Amen.